0: Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Phil Spector was a musical genius, one of the most successful record producers of all time. He is now sitting behind bars serving a 19 years to life sentence for murder. This is his story told by his so-called friends.
1: This is Special Agent Paul Ramon with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, working case number 004-10-7419, case subject is Specter Philip Harvey. This information pertains to a period ending February fourth, 1980. Interview subject is Harry Deborah Ann, interview number 6-66-524-202, recall number 6, date is February twentieth, two 2005.
2: Guns were his fascination. He showed them off, waved them around. It's tragic the way things turned out for him because being such a genius and such a front runner and an inventive producer, it seems awful what happened. I honestly wish it didn't happen. I don't wish that sort of thing on anyone. He obviously made a terrible mistake, but it's not terribly surprising that he could make such a mistake. You understand what I'm talking about. I think he had a wild side to him, a reputation. I can't really venture to guess on what he was thinking. I think it was sort of a game to him. And sometimes games turn out badly. The kind of game he played was the kind that left tragedies in their wake. The kind that leaves blood on the tracks.
1: Phil Spector and Debbie Harry.
3: I'm not saying the guy wasn't a genius, because obviously he was. Listen to his records. The genius is there. It was what he perceived to be the size and scope of his own genius that was the problem. He thought he was the second coming of Wagner and that everyone should step aside, make way for Wagner Jr. I think he had a wild side to him. But more often than not, the man was nothing more than a vindictive, petty thug. The pettiest of thugs, of course.
2: Of reputation.
3: The thug who hides behind bigger thugs. Guys like George Brand the guys who would follow him around and flank him at the restaurant, the studio, arms crossed against their chest. Phil and George would pull guns from their holsters and compare them like some big dick contest. But you know the motivation behind some overcompensating handgun drive is anything but big, if you know what I'm saying. Someone told me he even brought his thugs to his 10-year high school reunion. Can you imagine? Everyone else shows up with their wife or their husband, a date at least. And here comes the second coming of Wagner walking tandem with some mute musclehead. Less of Wagner incarnate than he was the helicopter in Apocalypse Now blaring Wagner at full blast. It's tragic the way things turned out for him. He just humiliated everyone in his path. It was his revenge on a world that had humiliated him. That cologne he wore, that Caesar cologne, I think it was. He just swam in this stuff. It was like fucking napalm to the rest of us. I was used to it. I was used to this particular strain of Caesar-drenched male ego. My whole stage persona in Blondie was that of a woman from a man's point of view, after all. I lived in that world. I was surrounded by guys in Blondie and guys in every other band in New York City. Tina was the only exception to that role. I'd heard everything, been asked everything, been told everything, been sized up, belittled, propositioned, humiliated. But I'd never had a gun pulled on me before. Guns were
2: his fascination.
3: When you feel a 45 pressed into the worn leather of your thigh-high boot, you know it's a 45. does Doesn't matter if you've never felt it before, you just know. All the warning signs were there.
2: I think he had a wild side to him.
3: His reputation preceded him, of course, just like his Caesar cologne. We had heard all the stories. Such a genius. And then he was there, in our dressing room. Blondie had made the jump from New York to LA. It was like Cheap Trick playing Budokan. They loved us in LA in a way that New York could never love us. We did a week's residency at the Whiskey. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers opened. And then we did a second week with the Ramones. The crowds pogoed and body slammed. The room was electric, night after night.
1: Okay, it's never a quiet moment at the Whiskey and Go-Go on the Sunset Strip.
3: We were upstairs in one of those cramped dressing rooms after one of the shows with the Ramones. You think New York dressing rooms are small. Joey was hunched over and Phil walks in. I have He's in a long black cape, black shirt, black tie, black sunglasses, beard and big hair a big cross hung from a chain around his neck. He looks like Dracula's hairdresser.
1: He has walked through centuries, untouched by
3: time. He's got a button on that says in the flesh, you know, from our first record. And he kicks everyone out but us. He kicks out Joey and the boys. He's there to see us. We were used to playing second fiddle to all the others in New York. But there, on the Sunset Strip, Phil Spector thinks we're the tops. So, okay, he kicks everyone out. He shuts the door, stands in front of it, and just talks about all the hit records he made.
2: Such a front-runner.
3: He talks about the way things used to be, about echo chambers, about songwriting.
2: Inventive producer.
3: Tina this, Righteous Brothers that. He talked about us, about Blondie. He was obviously interested in us. Interested in the 60s girl group throwback sounds from our first record. Well, he was interested in me. I'm sure of that. I've seen that look a million times before. The thousand-yard stare of a man who thinks you're the one thing when you're clearly not. Chris or Clem or one of the guys would catch on and say something to fuck with him. And his half-fawning, half-grandfatherly attitude would snap in two.
4: Who the hell do you think you're talking to?
3: he would say and the small room would tense up he had two tall twin girls with him they stood watch at the door to make sure no one would get in every time he lost his temper neither one of them would flinch it was all very strange we hung around that room for a long time wondering if we'd ever leave So eventually he invited us back to his mansion, which is right up the road from the whiskey, up the hill from Hollywood, heading towards the valley. We figure that ain't every day that a major producer invited us to come hang at his mansion, right? So why wouldn't we? We wind up the road, he greets us at the front door, which sounds like something he rarely did. He liked to make people wait, create suspense, tension. Not us, man. He had a bottle of Manischewitz in one hand, his Colt 45 in the other.
2: I can't really venture to guess on what he was thinking.
3: Probably should have turned around right then. I mean, if that's not an ominous sign, the guy's whack job colors are in full flight. Inside the place was a meat locker. The AC was on full blast. The place was so cold, so dark, it's at this point I'm thinking that the whole Dracula's hairdresser thing ain't so far off. We talked for a while, Phil says he wants to produce us, and every time we try to say we'll think about it and make a move for the door, he stops us.
4: Stay, just a little bit longer.
3: He sat down at the piano, starts to bang out Be My Baby and these other Annette songs. He told me to sit down on the bench next to him, wanted me to sing with him, and for Chris to grab his guitar and play along. He was orchestrating some spontaneous jam session, but there was nothing spontaneous about it.
2: I honestly wish it didn't happen.
3: The gun thing happened soon after. We had moved to the couch, still engaged in this uncomfortable hang, still being held against our will in this winking, kinda elbow-nudging sorta way. Phil came up from behind and stuck that 45 between my leg and the leather of my thigh-high boot.
2: He obviously made a terrible
3: mistake. He goes, bang, bang, and then laughs. I was like, get me the fuck out of here. The same thing happened to the Ramones, you know. Johnny and Dee Dee told me all about it.
1: We didn't really know how difficult it is to work with the guy before we stepped into it. We found out.
3: I guess when Phil realized he wasn't gonna get to work with Blondie, he went for the next best thing. He put his sights on the Ramones. The boys told me all about it. They were back in LA later in 1977 and Phil comes to their show just like he came to ours. He goes backstage, just like he had done with us. I think
2: he had a reputation.
3: Tells them that he thinks they're the best band in America. Tells them he wants to produce them. And he invites the group back to the mansion. Now, the Ramones weren't as polite and accommodating as we were, which is saying a lot. So at the mansion, it's obvious Phil thinks of the band as Joey Ramone and his throwaway backup players. Just like he looked at Blondie as Deborah Harry and a bunch of random guys, know what I mean? I think his concept of a band was very myopic. Such a front runner. They couldn't be a collective unit. They had to have a star. They had Ronnie Spector and the rest was filler. Such an producer. Joey's his boy, right? He said Joey's voice reminded him of Dion. Phil had just made a record with Dion, so he got Dion on the brain. And this makes the rest of the Ramones real ornery and tense. They're standing around in that Arctic wasteland of Hollywood entitlement. The whole place is dripping with money and history and irony. And here they are, a couple of boys from Queens in their leather jackets and ripped blue jeans. It's just like a couple of rubber duckies floating in a gold-plated bathtub filled with imported water, getting more and more uncomfortable by the second. Look, those of us who have been stuck in Phil Spector's house know what I'm talking about.
2: I honestly wish it didn't happen.
3: Phil asked them how well their records were selling. They had no clue. They didn't care about that shit. So he goes to another room, comes back with a printout from his computer, shows them that their sales have gone down, shows them that Leave Home sold way less than their first record, tells them he can get them back on top. He goes... What's it gonna take? You want me to get you some girls? You want me to buy you some cars? This real L.A. power broker shit, you know. Let's push these rookie numbers up, boys. And then he offers them 50 grand each, cash, on the spot, right there. He picks up the receiver on the phone there in that opulent living room and says he'll get his lawyers to bring the cash to the house straight away. Fifty grand each.
2: I think he had a wild side to him.
3: I don't think the boys knew what to do with that kind of offer. Meanwhile, the whole time this was going on, Dee Dee is getting more and more annoyed that Phil is directing the majority of his questions and heaping all his attention on Joey. Just Joey. Joey, 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 Joey. Joey is like a fucking giant to Phil. Physically and artistically. I can't
2: really venture to guess on what he was thinking.
3: Phil saw a frontman, but he probably saw a god. And he had a god standing in his living room held captive. He was going to give that god a wad of cash and do with him what he wanted. You know, today your love, tomorrow the world, and all that. Dee Dee made some tossed-off comment about the whole thing, about how bogus it was. A joke, really. That dry and snarky Queen sense of humor. Phil didn't get it. Phil was offended. Let's face it, he was always offended by something someone said to him. The entitlement of a legend, you know? Phil pulled the gun and pointed it straight at Dee Dee. Didi was shocked, they were all shocked, and he started yelling at Phil, you know? I would hit you, man, but I respect you too much, that kind of thing. And it just got crazier. Roy Carr was there. He was a writer for the New Musical Express. He was there working on a screenplay of Phil's life, right? I don't think the thing ever got made. So Phil hands the gun to Roy and starts striking these kung fu poses. He had this guy, Emil, Emil Farkas. This guy who taught him martial arts and worked as one of his bodyguards. Emil taught him all this Bruce Lee macho posturing stuff. It was right up Phil's alley, right? So he hands Roy the gun, and he jumps into this kung fu stance, starts making the noises. Dee Dee told me it was like some bird giving a mating call. So, DeeDee is screaming at this point. Knowing DeeDee, he is probably worried that he's gonna fucking kill Phil Spector in his mansion if the guy gets too close. DeeDee is trying to hold back, his body is all tensed up and his fists are clenched. DeeDee is street tough, right? This is the guy who wrote 53rd and 3rd, the guy who lived 53rd and 3rd. At this point, Joey, Johnny, and Tommy are in position, ready to back up Dee Dee if they need to. And here's this wild man, Hollywood big shot, offering them 200 grand in cash and then pulling a gun on them and not letting them leave his sight. Phil is making more noises, waving his arms around in the air. He does a scissor kick up in the air and Dee Dee jumps. He's yelling at Phil that he didn't come here to fight. He came here to hang out, talk, listen to music, and that Phil should really stop before someone gets hurt.
4: He wasn't um, the most friendly guy I've ever met. He, he tried to be friends, and then he had his guns on him, and he wouldn't let me out of his house for a couple of days, and, you know, and then he, he said if you want to play a spinball machine, he'd let you play for a minute. And then he'd say, OK, everybody to another room. And I never met anyone like him.
3: But no one got hurt, thankfully. How they got away from Phil that night, even Dee Dee and Johnny couldn't fully remember when they told me about it.
2: It seems awful what happened.
3: I don't know if anyone remembers how. I certainly don't. Who knows if Ronnie does or Darlene or anyone who found themselves one of his eternal late-night guests freezing their ass off in his ice-cold fortress of solitude. Sometimes
2: games
3: All anyone remembers is the long, agonizing time spent inside that place watching that man crack and splinter a little more every time someone made a move for the door. And then the air. You remembered the warm, expansive Los Angeles air when you finally found yourself back outside with the mansion to your back.
1: We'll be right back after this word, word,
3: word. We were doing the media circuit. The media circus, I called it. In May of 1979, when the Ramones finally gave in to Phil's continued advances and made a record with him. It must have taken a bit of convincing to get Dee back in a room with him. That April, Heart of Glass had gone platinum and hit number one. Blondie was on American Bandstand and Midnight Special and the Merv Griffin Show and the Mike Douglas Show. It was soon after that Rush Show in Philadelphia. The rest of our year was a complete 180 from that train wreck of a show. We opened for Rush. We tried to open for Rush, but their fans hated us. Chris gave them the middle finger from stage, and the place went full-on mutiny. It's hard enough to be an opener as it is, right? They booed us, threw trash at us. Phil flipped the bird. Clem kicked over his drum set. We made it through one song, maybe two. I wasn't thinking much of Phil Spector at that point, I gotta tell ya. I had moved on. I saw the writing on the wall that night at his place. The writing didn't even have a chance to dry, and I knew something was happening.
2: I think it was sort of a game to
3: The Ramones must have just been gluttons for punishment, right? So we're doing the circus and Heart of Glass is breaking down doors for us. The Ramones are stuck in that tiny gold star studios in Hollywood, Phil's preferred locale for genius and torture.
2: Such a genius and such a frontrunner.
3: Can you imagine? Stuck in that hole in the wall with him? Didi and Johnny didn't sugarcoat the whole experience. They told it like it was, just like anyone would expect the Ramones to tell it. I remember Didi saying,
4: I wanted to work with him 100%. and uh, I was going whole for the project. He came off differently. He, he seemed more positive and more able. And when I got into the studio, I found him to be like a helpless little boy or something. He didn't know what to do. And that just stifles creativity when you just hang around in agony and frustration and stomp your foot. You know, that doesn't bring out anything in anybody. Phil
3: was drinking a lot by this point. He didn't used to drink at all from what I've been told, but now he was hitting the Manischewitz hard, straight from a thermos into a plastic cup he'd sip from with a straw. Like only a person who thinks he's refined, but he's really not, could.
2: I think it was sort of a game,
3: and he brought in all these other session players to be on the record. He told the Ramones they were the best band in America, but then he wouldn't let them be the Ramones? They would be Phil's version of the Ramones. Johnny nailed it when he said working with Phil is very difficult.
1: I guess he's a perfectionist, so he likes to spend a lot of time redoing things and re-listening, and it's very time consuming. I mean, rock and roll's gotta be spontaneous and done a little faster.
3: It was hard for the rest of them, for the boys who weren't Joey. Phil had Joey sing Ronnie's Baby I Love You like the band was the second coming of the Ronettes. And meanwhile, the boys are twiddling their thumbs. Marky and Dee Dee hit the strip in search of its legendary seedy nightlife. They were like Ringo and George lost in a sea of boredom while Paul labored over Sergeant Peppers.
4: I like um beauty to be instant you know not to be labored over and i don't like music to be a hustle
3: johnny just about lost his mind when phil spent something like 12 hours working on the opening chord to rock and roll high school like an entire session man
1: he's just too difficult to work with and it's too costly and time consuming and uh in the 1980s. Times have changed and most producers from the mid-60s haven't really grown with those changes. There's a new modern sound and he doesn't
3: have it. Johnny took as much as he could reasonably take. Hours and hours listening to one chord, making everything just right, just so. He finally stood up and walked for the door. And there's Phil with his gonzo thug threats telling him what's gonna happen if he walks out the door. Phil, his Colt 45, snug in the holster against the side of his chest.
4: Who the hell do you think you're talking to?
3: And all that macho, big shot posturing. And Johnny just goes, what are you gonna do? Shoot me? Later, Johnny told me.
1: He spent 12 hours sitting there listening to that same chord over and over again. Nobody else could hear the difference. I mean, the chord ended up sounding okay, but 12 hours worth ain't really worth it, you know? You just go crazy. We'd be as crazy as him if we worked with him.
3: But Didi. Didi said it best, as usual, just summed up the whole experience in the way that only Didi can.
4: He seemed like a man walking his last mile doing our record, you know, that grim.
3: He had been walking that walk for a long time, let me tell you. A long time. It was a long walk to make. To go from such a genius and such a front runner and such an inventive producer to a man stuck in the accomplishments of his past. A man who wanted to be admired so bad, he would literally hold admiration hostage in his own house. That's a long walk. I didn't want to walk beside him. I knew that from the night he brought us back to the mansion. Unlike the Ramones, the first time I stepped foot inside his place was the last time I'd ever see him.
0: February 4th, 1980, New York City. After seven months, $200,000, and more repeated takes of the same chord than anyone cared to remember, the Ramones released their fifth studio album. It cost more than three times to make than the typical Ramones album. End of the Century was produced by Phil Spector, who gave the band the same hollow promises he had given Leonard Cohen a few years before. The kind of promises that only a man with ego, money, and time to spare can make. This is gonna be a hit. This is gonna change your life. Of course, the record did neither for the Ramones. To Johnny Ramone, the whole prolonged chapter in their career was rife with redundancies, conflict, and acrimony. To Johnny, it was all Joey, 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 Joey. He repeated the name over and over again every time his arm jackhammered eighth note downstrokes onto his guitar. Joey, 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 Joey. Johnny took all his frustration, all his disappointment, all his pain, and put it into each whiplash riff. Joey Ramone had been Phil Spector's pet. Phil heard his past hits in Joey's voice. And the rest of them, they could all go pound sand for all Phil cared. Dee Dee and Marky didn't even know how the thing was ever finished because they felt like they didn't even play on most of it. In the same month, a photo of Debbie Harry taken by Mick Rock graced the cover of Penthouse Magazine. In her typically subversive style that ran opposite to the magazine's exploitative style, Debbie was fully clothed in black up to her neck. Soon, Blondie would head to L.A. and make their first album outside of New York. An album that would feature Rapture and The Tide is High and give them the kind of fame and success that someone like Phil Spector would promise, but as of late, fail to deliver. Johnny Ramone watched End of the Century climb to number 44 on the U.S. charts where it stalled. To add insult to injury, though it was technically the band's highest-peaking album on the charts, to Johnny's ears, it was the record that sounded the least like the band. It was watered-down, Ramones. Ramones' light, weak sauce. It wasn't punk rock at all. Nothing about it was punk. It was Phil Spector's version of the Ramones. Just like Let It Be had been his version of The Beatles. And that hurt Johnny. But anyone's pain, anyone's suffering, would be nothing but a walk down a primrose path when the true pain hit 10 months later. The pain that lay there waiting to grip the entire world, didn't matter if you were Johnny Ramone or Debbie Harry, didn't matter if you were Rodney on the ROQ or Roy Carr or Dion, the pain gripped you. But it gripped Phil Spector harder than it gripped most. It found Phil Spector alone in his cold mansion on La Colina Drive, found him vulnerable and unprepared.
1: Uh,
0: this evening, John Lennon arrived
1: at the emergency room at uh, Roosevelt Hospital. He was dead on at the time of his arrival. Numerous resuscitative efforts were made after his arrival at the hospital, including transfusions, surgical procedures, uh, other procedures. But in spite of the effort of many physicians and, and after many procedures, we were unable to restore the life of Mr. Lennon.
0: Phil was struck dumb. He felt destroyed, blown down to his core. He felt friendless, hitless, and now, Johnless. He didn't know if he would be able to face the world without John. He walked slowly through the long halls and wide-open rooms of the La Colina mansion, slowly up the staircase, past the Steinway and the Picasso, past the French Empire furniture, past the whoopee cushions and joke-shop chattering teeth, past the motley fusion of high and low art until he reached the bedroom. He thought of Tittenhurst Park, of Abbey Road, of New York. And as he closed the door and locked himself in his bedroom, He thought about the games he had played over the years. The games that left tragedies in their wake. The games that left blood on the tracks. This episode of Blood on the Tracks is brought to you by 27 Club, a podcast that I host on musicians who died at the age of 27. Season two featuring Jim Morrison is now available, as is season one with 12 episodes featuring Jimi Hendrix. Subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. And of course, this episode was also brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast also hosted by yours truly. Episodes on the Rolling Stones, Jerry Lewis, Cardi B, The Grateful Dead, Jay-Z, Prince, and many, many more are all waiting for you right now. Just search Disgraceland on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, this episode of Blood on the Tracks was written by Zeth Lundy and scored and mixed by Matt Bowden, hosted by me, Jake Brennan, additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode featured Ruby Rose Fox as Debbie Harry. Blood on the Tracks is produced by myself, for Double Elvis, in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free Blood on the Tracks poster designed by Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts. You can hashtag Blood on the Tracks on social media, leave your review there, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Go ahead and give that a follow all right, as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on Disgraceland and 27 Club, and you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPuff. Rock a